Welcome back, everyone. Today we have another guest, Jeff, all the way from, well, where are you based, uh, Jeff? I'm in Cambridge, UK. Cambridge, UK. And on the other side, we have Richard as well. Still in Hong Kong, I think. Still in Hong Kong. Hello again. <laughs> Excellent. Um, Jeff, the first question um, is to how we describe to people who have no a clue what your background is, what you actually do? Oh, well, that's a really good question. And I mean, how long do we have, you know? Um, I, I've usually described myself as someone who helps organizations create future fit cultures. Um, but I come from an innovation background. I used to work for an innovation consulting firm. And some of our clients decided that they quite liked the culture there. And they said, you know, can you, we like working with your people more than with our people. Can you come and make some of our people behave like your people? Um, which was about 30 years ago, and that kind of started off the career track I've been on ever since. So uh, I kind of changed my statement on LinkedIn um, probably as frequently as most people change their trousers. But, uh, yeah, I, have, I haven't quite yet got to the, the nub of exactly what it is that I do in a way that is just succinct because it involves, you know, coaching, executive development, uh, consulting work, um, team building, a whole range of things that, that normally fit into little separate pigeonholes um, and therefore organizations end up with very fragmented attempts to solve some of the complex systemic problems they have. So yeah, it's not easy to fit into a particular pigeonhole. In fact, I, I, I sometimes like to say, I'm here to blow up your pigeonholes, not to fit into one of them. So yeah. Uh, just, just a quick segue into, they said they liked the the people and the work you did and the culture you had so what was it they liked because that, that obviously underpins what you're doing something yeah. that, that, that was working that you, you've taken further yeah well you know when I say it's a technology consultancy I don't mean an IT consultancy it used to do all sorts of things still does actually it's, it's a very successful international firm called Cambridge Consultants um, they um, did when I joined their, their specialist areas for things like um, optical physics, so they did lots of stuff on lasers. Um, my area was digital um, systems, so digital electronics and digital software. Back in those days, if you, if you wrote um, real-time software, you had to actually build your own platform to run it on. I mean, you couldn't buy sort of uh, small um, mini computers, microcomputers to run things on. So um, that, what they liked was that when they came to us which usually they thought they'd come to us for some technology, like to, to get a new product at market in nine months, maybe their normal product development cycle might be say two years or something like that. And so they, they'd suddenly have a competitor who was eating into their market share. They'd need to get to market in nine months instead of two years, you know, help. And a lot of the work that we did as well as injecting new technology was getting the bits of their organization joined up because normally in most organizations, and I, you know, a lot of my early career experience was in the high tech sector, you tend to have people in R&D who hate the people in manufacturing, who hate the people in production, who hate the people in field service, who hate the people in, in, uh, in marketing. And everybody sees everybody else as part of the problem. And if you wanna get a new product into market very, very fast and therefore become more agile and, and quicker to, to move, uh, you need to actually get everybody aligned. And we'd learn how to do that because in order to do what we did with our clients, we'd had to build relationships inside their organization that allowed people in disparate functions who were normally at war with each other and saw each other as aliens to actually work together in a much more aligned 
and closely coupled um, fashion because a lot of the learning you have to do is iterative so you've kind of got to be able to make sense of things um, you know, decide what to do and then and then take action and, and iterate that quite quickly so what they were saying was that when we came in and did that with their people that was something that suddenly started to happen in their organization when they tried to do it on other or they looked at other projects that we weren't involved in it was really slow and there was lots of people sending emails covering their own backs cc to 27 senior directors and all the kind of rubbish that you see in organizations and they could see the massive difference between what was happening when we were working with them versus what was happening when they were left their own devices so it was can you kind of inject some of that culture into our organization because we'd like some of that please so, and so, you know, at that time i was more interested in the people side of things than the technology side my background is um, you know engineering so uh, i'm kind of, the, the bit of engineering that i've kept is i'm really into tools you know what can you do to make stuff really work in a practical way and a lot of the stuff around organization culture is so ethereal and theoretical and you put people in a workshop and they have great thoughts and they sign the happy sheet at the end and you know nothing actually changes so my thing's always been about how do you make tangible change happen and stick in an organization and equip the people who work there with the tools it's no good having external experts coming in who know this stuff inside out back to front if the moment they leave there is no retention in the organization and everything reverts back to the way it was before so I'm, I'm getting a quote coming into my head. I don't know if you, if you ever saw the original Top Gun film when Maverick says, I, I, I feel, feel the need for speed. <laughs> um, so, so at the back of it, you've got these organisations that, that feel the need for speed. They yeah. recognise they've got to go for, uh, iterate much more quickly. And yeah. to an extent, the reason the Maverick came into head, I mean, you're a rarity in that you're an engineer that, that went into human behaviour yeah. Um, from this from this deep engineering background, so is this sort of does that sort of sum up where you fit? This 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 hybrid maverick engineer behavioural guy who could make things happen more quickly. See, I told you people try and fit me into pigeonholes, you know, and you just created a new one for me and I tried to put it. So, I did. So it was a hybrid to... pigeonhole, at least. That. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, to a degree, it's true, which is what you say. Um, I think that the other aspect that kind of had a big impact on my journey was that uh, around 30 years ago, I had something of a kind of personal crisis. Um, you might call it a breakdown. I mean, and, and part of my recovery from that was getting quite interested in um, Eastern philosophy and, and trying to understand the inner workings of the self, which was something that I'd, you know, as an engineer, you see, I'm using engineering terminology again, like the, the inner workings of the self, you know, as a kid, I was always like, I was fascinated by electricity and I knew there was some sort of power in those sockets in the wall. And I used to get my mum's knitting needles. I was about three or four years old. And I used to get my mum's knitting needles and try and poke them into these holes in the wall to try and discover, you know, what was the power that was behind there. And um, fortunately, because in the UK, we have power sockets that are designed to something called British Standard 1363, which is designed such that you cannot get at the live pin unless you poke something in the earth pin at the top of the socket first. Uh, and I didn't know that at the age of four, so I never managed to get to the life pin. And by the time I was intelligent enough to know how you got at the life pin, I also knew that it wasn't a good <laughs> idea to go around poking things into it. But it was like, you know, the, the power, the reason I did the electronics at, at university and systems engineering was 
how do, how do things work and how can you make them work better? And when I went through this kind of weird personal crisis in my early 30s, when everything externally was fine, a good job, good career, company car, you know, healthy child, um, good marriage, um, great company I was working with, and something wasn't quite right inside. What I lacked was some tools to kind of work on myself internally. And I guess it was as I started to do that, and I was still doing consulting work for clients, helping them around this sort of innovation culture, need for speed, need for agility, uh, that, that it was in that experience that I began to see they're falling into the same traps that I'd fallen into in my own head. And therefore, I could see what was required to help people to get out of the, the stuckness that they have, where they can only see things one way. And if somebody tries to um, suggest to them that there might be some more aspects to what they're seeing than the things they already see, they can get very defensive, particularly if they're in senior positions or particularly if they're experts. Um, people can get very, um, very attached to their particular perspective on things. And if you want innovation and if you want people to work well together across disciplines in order to get the speed I was talking about earlier, you really have to learn how to stop doing that, stop getting stuck in a single perspective. So that was a kind of dimension, I guess, that helped me move from purely dealing with technology and stuff and try and understand some of the, if you like, the technology of the human psyche and what actually um, creates behavior. Because initially when I was doing this work, I literally was very, very dumb. And I mean, I was kind of like trying to just transfer things that I thought worked well in Cambridge consultants and just implement them in the client's organization. I mean, it really was very naive. Um, and then I noticed some things worked and some things didn't. Some things worked in some cultures and some things didn't work in other cultures. And that really then started the fascination with what's going on here. So as well as this kind of Eastern philosophical view of what causes people to see things a certain way and therefore think about things in a certain way uh, and behave in certain ways and have certain attitudes. I, I also started then to underpin that by looking at some of the academic, uh, and you know, maybe more popular academic literature around organization behavior, innovation, you know, things like Peter Senge, I ended up working with his consultants for, for a long time. Um, you know, all the stuff that he drew together in, in the organizational learning body of knowledge uh, people like Ari Lukers, who was also involved in all of that, and he used to be head of group planning at Shell, and we worked together on the board of the Society for Organisational Learning. There's quite a lot of things that I kind of then looked into to try and find, well, this seems to work, but this doesn't. What might be the intellectual underpinnings of that? And of course, you know, that's kind of how you and I connected a few years ago, was, was sort of you were coming at it from that um, academic angle and, and had some practical experience, and I'd come at it in a kind of a I think they call it grounded theory, you know, when you poke around at stuff and then you kind of go, oh, that's interesting. What does that? And you, your theory emerges from the practice as opposed to approaching it with the theory that you then try and fit the data to suit the theory. And I'm going to poke around on the idea of hybridity a bit more here, Jeff, because it's quite interesting. So you've come from a, a sort of a highly Western, highly technocratic engineering background. And then you've, you've, you've added to, or you've created a hybrid with a much more harmonious Eastern sort of understanding of self where, you, where instead of solving problems, you sort of learn to resonate with them and live with them and, and, and uh, have a stance, a sort of very different stance and relationship with them. Yeah. Uh, that must have been a very interesting um, journey putting it together, but also a very interesting journey 
discovering how to, to talk to organizations who are perhaps still on that, well, this needs to be fixed from a, a, a more stance-provoking space. So you've got any yeah. examples of how that impacted your life and your work? Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose this, this is sort of a concrete example, which is also mixed in with a kind of more subtle example, if I can use that term. Um, and it was, I was working with a client in Sweden, and it was a biotech startup, but they, they got through the startup phase, they were actually scaling up. And as part of the scaling up, uh, some of the investors had insisted on a change of CEO, so they brought some guy in who was much more market orientated than the, the founder, who was a technology person who understood the, 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 the weird um, technology that they were doing based on some amazing biophysical phenomenon um, that I just couldn't get my head around, even with a physics background. Surface plasmon resonance, if anybody's interested. Um, and so what had happened up to that point is the company had been very technology driven and, and the technologists in the firm had, had basically had the upper hand. There were some marketing people in there, but they were very much second class citizens. Um, and this new CEO came in and very early on made this announcement or pronouncement uh, up until now, we have been a technology-driven company. Henceforth, we will be a market-driven company. And that was about it. And of course, then everybody was left to try and work out, well, what does that mean? And so what the marketing people thought was, at long last, we're in charge. You know, We will sort out those technology folks who have been pushing us around for far too long. And the technology folks kind of thought, oh, okay, so that is an incompetent bunch of idiots who are in marketing who do all that arm-waving stuff and promising customers anything as long as they make a sale, even if it's beyond the laws of physics. Th those idiots are now running, you know, the, the lunatics have taken over the asylum. Okay, let's see how well that, you know, uh, how that works out. Uh, so, so there was this kind of impasse where the technical people didn't want to work with the marketing people because they thought they were idiots. And the marketing people thought they were in charge but didn't understand the technology. And it was just a complete mess. Um, and in fact, I got, I got involved because I was working at Cambridge Consultants at the time and the, the guy I shared an office with was responsible for the marketing and sales activity in Scandinavia. And he, he was chatting with me one day over coffee and said, you know, what, what do you think these guys are, you know, what, what do you think is going on? And I said, I don't know. I mean, you know, we chat, chat to him about whether he'd be interested in some of this sort of culture change stuff. So the guy said he would, and um, I, I got engaged with them and started to do some work with them and try and understand the different perspectives of the different people. Um, and I was kind of really, you know, not really getting very far. I mean, I was just seeing the surface effects of, of the problem. And uh, I ended up um, one morning, and this is the subtle bit of it, one morning having my early morning meditation, by which time I'd kind of been practicing for a few years. And... Um, I was just sitting there sort of quietly enjoying this sort of silence in the early morning. And all of a sudden into my head popped this idea that the marketing people were probably seeing that um, being market driven meant, you know, we're calling all the shots and that the engineering people thought this meant that the marketing people were, you know, um, in charge now, but they didn't have the competence to do it. And I kind of, it just sort of crystallized out to me that these were actually two different aspects of a reality that neither of them were seeing at a bigger picture level. And I went in the next morning and uh, chatted to the, I think it was the vice president of marketing. And I said to her, look, I had this thought this morning that maybe there's this going on amongst some people and this going on amongst some other people. And it was like a little light bulb went on in her head. And she said, 
I could do you a list of each of the people in the company who fall into each of those categories and are basically at war with each other. And so, you know, in a little bit of conversation with her and the vice president of technology, so it's basically the two warring factions, the heads of those, of those areas, um, we, we just sort of thought this through a little bit um, because it stopped becoming a we're right, they're wrong on both sides. I mean, that's, that's the phenomenon that you often find. It's like it's them over there that need to change. We're doing okay, we're doing a good job, but it's those folks over there who need to change. So that's a, a classic symptom of dysfunction in organizations. Um, and so it was, it was kind of getting to the point where they're able to understand why the other group of people are seeing things in a, in a particular narrow way and why therefore the way they're seeing it is incompatible with that and therefore being able to see something at the higher level. And what, what ended up with that, and I mean, it kind of sounds so simple when you, when you describe it, was we got away from the CEO saying, we're gonna be market driven and had him start saying, we have to drive the market because driving the market required that the marketing people understood enough about the technology to be able to go and, uh, and talk with potential customers in various sectors like you know, food hygiene or environmental controls or whatever, where this technology was very, had some significant benefits, but they had to be able to demonstrate it. But the technology people had to produce some demonstration platforms that these folks could use. So getting that dialogue going between them and getting away from this warfare was, um, was, was and, the, and the reason that it always comes to my mind when anyone asks me about this is because it blew away in my own mind a, a limiting belief that I think many, many people hold around culture change in organizations, which is that culture change takes a long time. And literally this organization's culture changed overnight. They went from being like this to being like this. And like within days, it was as though I was left in the slipstream and they were kind of heading off, you know, getting on with stuff and really being creative and really being innovative. Whereas a week before they were, they were either at war with each other or, or basically hunkered down in their bunkers, lobbing the odd brick or you know, hand grenade or probably, you know, ICBM at each other um, from behind their, their defensive shields. And it really made me wake up to the fact that culture change does not have to take a long time if you get to the nub of why it is that people are not aligned and are not working together well, not collaborating, not cooperating. Uh, so like to, uh, you remind me of that wonderful story of, of the, the, the machine that's completely broken. And yeah. they, bring in, they bring in the engineer to, 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 to fix it. And the engineer sort of wanders around uh, and he just he goes, gets one screwdriver, screw and goes, screw. And it takes him like two seconds. Yeah. And, and everything works and then they refuse to pay him because he said well you only did two seconds work and he said yeah but you're paying me you're paying me for all the years of learning to know yeah. what two seconds of work i actually have to do and the way you frame that is very similar that, that you know that we just changed two words around and that made all the difference but i mean the the the, the holistic kind of work and being able to put everything together and, and, and the, the multiple complexities of multiple perspectives and also I mean, what I would call overcoming the, the, the naive heroic narrative, the fact that everybody is the hero from their own perspective. I mean, mm. there's a huge amount of complexity going on here. And, and so, so framing it as we just changed the word, two words around um, is, is quite incredible because you've, you've, to get there, you must have dealt with massive amounts of thought and problems and, uh, and, and, and different systems colliding. 
Yeah, and I, I guess, you know, as you say that, what's coming to my mind is that um, I, have a, I have a very deep conviction that people actually want to get on and want to work well together. You know, nobody goes to work to have a crappy day. You know, they actually want to be able to work productively together. And uh, you know, all of the years that Peter Drucker looked at organisations, I remember towards the end of his life, um, he was interviewed uh, on a, a, a satellite link with Peter Senge. And uh, it's, Senge asked him, you know, what could you sum up everything that you've kind of learned over the last, whatever it was, 60 years or so of poking around in organisations? Uh, and he said, oh, that's easy. You know, the, the secret to successful organisations is to play to our strengths in such a way that our weaknesses become irrelevant. So this idea that you create a culture where inside an organisation, people with complementary strengths work together well, rather than you try and have all of these well-rounded people who are kind of interchangeable cogs in some kind of machine, which you know then speaks to some of the deeper psychology of this around what metaphors people apply when they think about organizations. Um, so uh, yeah, I've, I've lost my train of thought now. What were we, what was the question? Just all, all, all of the complex work that you've, you've, you've had to have done to create such a simple, you know, that, that, the, the punchline of that yeah, story. Yeah. So it's this, it's this belief that if people can find their strengths, but understand that they are not omnipotent. Yeah, okay. And, and not just people in leadership positions. I mean, everybody in organizations has a kind of sense of, I know what I'm doing and others don't. I mean, it's one of the natural ego defense mechanisms that all humans have. If, if you kind of have the belief that if people can only find what it is they're really good at and be honest about the things they're not so good at and work with other people who are good at the things that compensate for their weaknesses, then actually what you do is you un unblock, unlock and unleash a huge amount of human potential that is sitting there waiting to be unleashed that, that helps people to feel motivated and, and worthwhile and enjoy the, what they're doing. Um, and, it, and, and it unlocks their creativity and it unlocks cooperation and collaboration. I mean, all the things that we try and make organizations do in very ridiculously mechanistic ways and have them all measured in some SAP software implementation and report back to senior leaders on you know what our engagement score is and all this stuff um if you can get the culture to shift in a way that starts to liberate some of that capacity people it's like a pump priming thing and people step up to being able to cooperate collaborate together much more effectively so what, what i guess what i'm doing when i'm in an organization when i'm doing my bit about you know finding out which screw to turn or you know where to hit the side of the machine with a hammer is I'm looking for where does it seem that, that the, the most significant systemic misalignments are that prevent that from happening automatically. And that is usually, well, I say usually, it's invariably in the heads of certain people who have a lot of influence over the culture, not necessarily always people in most senior positions, but they're people who when their perception and their mindset changes, it has a significant knock-on effect on multiple others. And if they then start to behave in this way, which is, okay, this is what I see. I'm very clear about what I see, but I also understand it's not the whole picture. And, they're, and then they're curious about what others see that they're missing. When they start to behave in that way, it has an amazing ripple effect on the rest of the organization. So part of the skill in this work is to try and find out who are those key influencers that are trapped in a particular, um, I, I use the language of, you know, they're trapped in a particular 2D perspective 
that they think is the 3D reality and others are similarly trapped in a different 2D perspective that they think is the whole of reality and each is seeing the other as wrong and therefore needing fixing. And that's the fundamental issue that stops that natural innate ability of human communities to come together and cooperate, collaborate to shape a better future for themselves and therefore the organization and the performance of the organization. Uh, that's the one thing that stops that happening. Get that out of the way and, and magic starts to happen. Um, and you kind of have to get out of the way before you get mown down in the rush. I think you framed a, a, a really interesting challenge within within the leadership development um, problem, as it were, in the moment. In, in the, on the one hand, you've got the, the tragic hero flaw is when strengths become weaknesses, so that you, you've, you've, you've got yourself to a, a position of um, a, a value or in the, up the hierarchy because your strength has always has always been there for you and it's helped you get up to be promoted. And all of a sudden, it, it's the actual strength undermines your own position because you're not seeing the, the, the reality. And, and the solution to that, which is the competency-based leadership development where you're, you're, you're getting people to, to sort of be well-rounded, um, you know, that, the, the challenge is that tends to produce well-rounded mediocrity rather than, than sophisticated leaders. So, so, so that's the interesting challenge is that, you know, to, to, to rub off this, this great strength, the solution hasn't worked. And I think you framed the, the, where the solution sits. It's, it's the curiosity that sits along to, alongside the strengths. That, that's almost that's necessary and, and and so i'm just interested before before and i, I realize i've been taking oscar's time but um <laughs> before we go back to oscar how do you how do you probe and, and, and enable that curiosity yeah so i mean for me it's really very simple i mean all i'm doing is asking people so how do you see things you know and i because because i approach things in a fairly open and non-judgmental manner because i don't think i have the answer i, I know they have the answer but I also know that they often don't see that they have the answer. So I'm very curious to try and understand where is it that the misalignments are occurring. So what I will tend to do is I'll, you know, usually there's a sponsoring, you know, if I'm working with an organization, there'll be a sponsoring executive who's hired me to come in and do stuff. And I'll talk with them and I'll say to them, well, who else do you think I should talk to? They'll give me some other people. I'll talk with them. And, and you start to kind of track where you think there are interesting things going on that you want to understand the perspective from that vantage point. So I'm always listening to what each person's saying about the organization, what they see as its challenges, what they think is important, where they think the problems lie, to kind of get a sense of their 2D perspective on things. And then I talk to other people and they clearly have some, you know, usually they have some commonality, but often there's a lot of difference in their perspective. And so having talked to a few people, you start to get a picture of what might the, the 3D reality you know, what might more of the 3D reality look like, given the vantage points that have been articulated by these different people with these different perspectives. Um, and, and in that process, you also start to understand, okay, so if the, let's say, the head of marketing sees things in a certain way, and a lot of people around that person start to feel, okay, I have to you know, my career depends on my boss being happy with me. What is it that they're looking for from me? So they behave in certain ways that they think are being signaled by the, the, the head of that function. Um, then that has a knock-on effect on those people. And if it turns out that that, that that head of marketing is stuck by helping them get unstuck, that's the thing that liberates a whole chunk around the organization. And then you run into whatever the next limit is. 
It's kind of like when, when you find the, the most important or a critical blockage in the organization, it's like, let's say you're lucky and you land on the first, the most critical um, blockage in the organization. As soon as you release that and, and you do some work to get that to be no longer a blockage, uh, the blockage that was number two gets a promotion. So it now becomes top of the league and becomes the thing that you then need to focus on. And very often, you've kind of got a sense of where you think these different blockages might be, but it isn't until you start to release one or two of them that other ones, the critical other ones become apparent because often they're, they're hidden beneath the surface. So I don't know if that goes some way to answer your yeah, I mean, I, I can I can see where the curiosity comes in there, and, and I mean, I, I can still see ego defences kicking in. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, throughout the organisation, when you do that, but so, I can I can absolutely see the value in doing it. So yeah, yeah and I, I I understand what you're doing. Awesome. And, and the thing is, with the ego defences, is is a lot of organisations go about culture change in a very clumsy way. Mm. And they trigger a lot of ego defenses before they've even started. And one of the ways they do that is they announce some massive transformational change program because some senior person thinks it looks good for them to be saying, I'm going to transform this organization. Well, as soon as they do that, just about everybody in the organization goes, what does that mean for me? And nobody can answer that question. So they immediately assume it's something bad. So they then start to either withdraw, disengage or undermine or some combination of those. So the best thing to do is to not announce anything and just try to do some stuff to loosen up some of these cultural blockages. And then as things start to change, people start going, well, things feel different around here. I mean, what's going on? And then they want to be involved in the change. So you kind of, if you like, you lead with change first so that people start to feel things are progressing and things are getting better. Then their natural enthusiasm draws them into getting involved rather than the normal approach, which is you stick them in a room and show them a PowerPoint deck and they'll go away and say, well, what was that all about? You know. Uh, so I've been listening for half an hour to you. Uh, we've we've <laughs> noticed. You're very patient. You're very patient. Yeah. <laughs> so you started with with this example of uh, a company that wasn't doing the transformation so well, right? So you had a sort of the CEO, the marketing engineering team, um, and then you went into okay the different perspectives. Uh, so this is a typical sort of uh, I would think uh, challenge that most companies face i also like to hear from you because i noticed that you also worked with a company that i think it was in cambridge as well that according to you did it very well no they had a very different um, uh, structure and organization so my mm. question to you is so des describe what they were doing well and maybe if you can go into this kind of the the approach or tactics that they were employing that led to their success. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it was the company I mentioned earlier, Cambridge Consultants, which was the one where I kind of cut my teeth and, and discovered that th this sort of stuff was possible, you know, because I previously, before I joined them, so I joined them in 1983, and before I joined them, I'd worked in engineering at the BBC, and before that, I'd worked in engineering at British Aerospace. And those are both organisations that, that really owe their heritage to a combination of the Church of England and the British Army, so very kind of hierarchical, top-down, command and control, um, traditional kind of institutions. And when I came to Cambridge in 83, people used to say to me, you know, oh, what's it like working at Cambridge? I, I, wow, it's like I've died and gone to heaven because the culture was so open that the managing director was, you didn't only know what he looked like, you know, you knew his name, um, Paul, 
and he had an open door policy. And the, and the only rule I think that existed that got drummed into you very, very early on was if you see something in the organization that you don't think is right and you don't speak up about it, then you're letting the team down. So he had an open door policy. So you would go in and say, Paul, you know, we're doing this so-and-so work for such and such a company. Do you think we should be doing it like that? Or do you know, and he wanted to have these, these kind of conversations. So the culture of the place stemmed from its founder, who was a guy called Tim Eilowart, who'd uh, founded it in 1960. So he was one of three, uh, they were Cambridge graduates, so one of three Cambridge graduates who decided that they were going to set up this company to solve the problems of British industry. So this was 1960. So, you know, I, can't, I, won't, I won't make an assessment of how, uh, how well that's gone over the years. But, but by the time I joined them, we were doing a lot of work internationally. And the thing that characterized the culture there was there were some really super smart people. I mean, there were literally people who were right at the leading edge of the technologies that they were working on. So there were folks in inkjet printing, nearly all the inkjet printers that you know and we all buy and we use on our computers come out of technology that was developed by Cambridge consultants in the 1970s and subsequently. And there's a whole range of those um, things that have been done with that technology. There were guys doing laser optics people really at the forefront of laser optics that, that a lot of that went into military applications which you know you can't talk about because you have to sign the official secrets act and all that uh, and there was a lot of biotech work so so you have these really really super smart people but the one thing that they all seemed to have was a singular lack of ego like nobody kind of lauded it over anybody because they were so smart and you get people coming in you know like me who were sort of reasonably smart reasonably high iq and you come in, you'd be surrounded by all these people who were like off the charts smart, but they weren't lording it over you. They weren't going around, look, look how important I am, look how clever I am. And I think that made, made for a very open culture where you were quite happy to go to someone who you recognized was a lot smarter than you and ask them their opinion on something you were working on because you knew that what they would give you is as much help as they possibly could. What they wouldn't do is say, oh, you don't understand that then? Oh, right, well, why have we hired someone like you if you don't have that level of understanding? So they didn't kind of need to bolster their own fragile ego because their ego was not fragile. And they kind of knew how to work with each other in a very open and collegiate and supportive way. So if you, if you did have someone who came in who was a little bit self-important, um, it quickly got drummed out of them in the sense that they realized that actually maybe they weren't quite as smart as they thought they were. And even if individually they were quite smart, they certainly wasn't, weren't as smart as, as everyone was together. So it was a lot about the culture, uh, even silly things like free coffee, uh, free lunches. So you'd go down to the staff restaurant and the, 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 the culture you quickly learned, the culture was you didn't sit in your own little cliquey groups at lunch. You'd come down and when you came down, you just join whichever table had got some spaces at it. So you ended up chatting to some people that you didn't normally know. And they would be interested in you, but they'd also be interested in what you're working on. So you talk about the project you were on and somebody would say, oh, you know, you should talk to Steve Temple. He's been working on such and such or Nigel Bragg or Malcolm McLeod. And there was all these people that they would point you to that because you then got to know those individuals and you knew what their speciality was, but you knew they were very approachable, meant that you were part of a very collaborative collegiate um, operation. And so... The thing that was very different, I think, about the place was it really tried very, very hard to create the, um, the, the, the opportunity for you to grow and flourish along the lines that you chose. 
as opposed to saying, well, you know, you've been hired to do this job, so you fit into that box there. And I, I mean, I tried lots of different things while I was there. I, as I say, I started doing engineering, um, digital systems engineering. I did some project management. Uh, I did some business development work. So I tried lots of different things until I actually realized, you know, what is this consulting to help clients change their culture is the thing that I, that I would like to do. And, and there, weren't, there wasn't anybody else in the company doing that. And I wasn't stopped from doing it. No, nobody said, you know, we didn't hire you to do that. It was like, well, okay, if that's what, if that's what your passion is, you know, and then I would involve some other people. And so that started to grow as an area of the business. And this was very much the philosophy of the place was, we want you to flourish um, because if you flourish, then we'll win business and we'll grow business and other people will join us and we'll grow further and further and further. And it's probably now about three times the size it was when I left, I, I, I transferred to their parent company, a management consulting firm called Arthur D. Little um, in the sort of mid 1990s. So I've been there like for 12 years or so. And, uh, you know, this is like what we're now 25 years on. Um, they're about four times the size. They've got a base in Asia, in Singapore. They've got a base in the state, two bases in the States, one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast. Um, and, you know, as far as I know, I'm not very close to them anymore. I'm kind of tied up in my own work and stuff. But from what I gather, they're still very much. Uh, you know, a leading edge firm when it comes to technology innovation. Well, that that's, that takes me to an interesting question, I think, and, and it's one that's, that's I've fretted over for a long time. Is this this notion of so when you were with them, perhaps weren't so big. So you had this really open laboratory style exploratory culture where everybody could 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 meet any everybody else and have these kind of chats. Is this feasible? And if it was say. 5,000, 10,000 people, is, is it a feasible thing to, to have a culture like that? And, and if so, have you been, as part of your consultancy, have you, have you created cultures like that in these bigger organisations? Yeah, I think the way to look at that is that really the number of people, so I mean, you know, there's this, there's this thing called the Dunbar number, which is reckoned to be about 140, 150, which is supposedly the maximum number of people who can kind of know each other uh, on a collegiate basis. Um, but if you think about your own experience, there's probably eight, 10, maybe a dozen people that you've in any organization that you've worked with really closely. And yet they are all parts of networks that include maybe up to the Dunbar number or thereabouts, 100, 150, 140, 150 people. The question is, do people organize themselves in a very um, rigid and bounded way? Or do these networks interweave with other networks? And I think that's the secret because, you know, if you've got a dozen people who know each other really well, but each of those people know a dozen people really well, and some of the dozen are the same, but some are different, you then have, you know, there aren't many, uh, what's this, this thing around it? Uh, it's been around for a while now, is um, seven degrees of Kevin Bacon. Mm. You know, that, uh, you know, everybody is like only seven steps away from Kevin Bacon in some way, shape or form. So I think that it's it's the collegiate nature of the culture that allows a much bigger organization to work. What tends to happen with bigger organizations is we divisionalize them and we separate them out in the sense that somebody is the head of that division and they have a P&L. And often their promotion in the future depends on how well they perform against. And that's a key word against somebody else sitting on another division who has a competing PL. And the questions that then arise is, if we were to collaborate together and do something, 
that would make your numbers look good and my numbers look good, but my numbers maybe not look so good as if I looked after my own ship on my own. And actually, even if I helped yours to fail a little bit in a, in a subtle way that nobody could pin on me, then actually I'm in a better position for my promotion, my career progression. So it's once you get into this individualistic kind of mindset of, if it's all about me and what can I do to get on and, and grab all the goodies for myself, if you, if, you, if, if you have the kind of culture that stops that happening, then you're able to work in a much more networked and a much more um, expansive way than if you allow this compartmentalization that basically means other parts of the organization are competing. And people are very good at competing. And once you know you're in a competitive relationship with someone, you can be very clever at not feeding information that would help them flourish, not supporting their area of the business. Um, and so in larger organizations, I mean, one of the oil companies, one of the big things that, that, that uh, we did with them was to understand is to have people at the heads of divisions who part of their assessment and, and career progression and remuneration was tied to how much they'd helped other divisions that weren't in their P&L. Mm -hmm. So you can start to encourage some of that. I mean, okay, that's a mechanistic way, but you know, if people are in organizations and they're worried about their numbers, you tie their numbers into a change of behavior and you start to help create a change of behavior. If you're also then doing something on the cultural level to try and you know, to support these people, because as you said earlier, Richard, you know, ego defenses, people often have got to senior positions because they're very good at winning and they don't like the idea of sharing power. And so often when you're doing this work in organizations, you meet people at a mid to senior level who say, well, hang on, if I'm not making all the decisions, then what is my job? Because they, they tend to think of their job in terms of seniority means decision rights, as opposed to seniority means positive influence over the culture, positive influence over the evolution of the organization, positive influence over whether the organization flourishes or, or suffers from pathologies. That's, that's wonderful. Thank you, Jeff. I mean, there, there, there are, I'm going to go back to Oscar in a second to ask a question because there's just a comment here that there are so many similarities from the way you're describing things to sort of this, as a culture emerges, so there's a deep spiritual belief in the culture initially within the organisation. So you've got the founder's character and everyone believes in the vision and the spirit. And then you get to sort of a, a peak uh, where Machiavellianism and, and, and self-interest and, and start to take to, to, to sort of get involved, and then you have this this steep decline into cynicism and, and, and things. So you're you're almost sort of you're just you're trying to keep the company just off the top of that peak or get them back into that spiritual belief that 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 should be part of the spirit of capitalism, and perhaps our, our compliance-driven organisations have lost somewhat. Um, for, for numerous reasons so that, that sort of I, I hear that I, I see that 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 cultural birth and rise and peak and decay thing in everything that you're doing yeah and I mean part of the problem I think is that we have a, a thing called professional management you know we send people off to do MBAs and things and they learn how to manage organizations and so you've got people who identify with managing and running organizations so if they have that consciousness and they go into an organization that maybe has flourished in a more organic way, then they start to make it more rigid. They start to make it more structured and they call that, you know, we're working the organization more efficient or we're making it more professional or what have you. But in doing that, you kill a lot of this spirit of enthusiasm, of, of cooperation and collaboration that actually is the lifeblood 
that makes the organization tick. So, you know, it, it's this sort of hierarchy of decision making uh, becomes an issue. Whereas if you had something, I mean, Gary Hamill, for example, talked about this a few years ago, you know, should have a hierarchy of imagination, you know, a hierarchy of innovation, uh, you know, a hierarchy of unleashing the power of the human spirit. I mean, that, that maybe, you know, would be a much better way to think about more senior people in more senior positions with the big hats, as opposed to, I get to call the shots. Because, you know, in today's world, which is so unpredictable uh, and so uncertain, um, you know, this BUCA acronym that, that has been slung around quite a lot, in that world, you do have to make a lot more decisions and you have to turn on a dime. You have to really be able to be, to be literally to be agile and adaptive. Um, and the only way you get that is when you recognize that to do that, you've got these three things going on, making sense of things, making decisions and taking action. And normally the making sense of things and the taking decisions were conflated and, and, and jealously guarded at the top of the organization. And so when those people at the top ran out of brain power, to be able to make the decisions and, and make sense of what's going on, they'd hire consulting firms, you know, $250 billion industry to come in and, and, and sort of plug in some extra brain power, like a kind of USB stick plugged into the CEO and, and the top team. But the pace of change and the unpredictability of change these days is, so, is such that unless that ability to make sense of things and make decisions and take actions, unless that's distributed in the organization, and down to where people are actually in touch with what's really going on in the world. Um, you, you won't be able to be agile because you won't be able the speed at which you can make decisions. You know, if all the decisions have to go to the top and then be debated and maybe some study done on whatever. By the time the answers of what we should do next, the decisions have been made and action plans are created, they're now precisely wrong because the world has changed. So you have to bring the ability to sense, decide and act much more into the body of the organization. And that then challenges people who say, well, my job is to make the decisions. So this is like probably one of the biggest challenges for any, organi any incumbent organization that is, but it, it requires people in these influential positions to make a shift in their own mindset away from, I have to make the decisions to, I have to create the decisions where good, uh, I have to create the conditions where good decisions get made and implemented and learned from. And it may sound like a bit of, you know, slate of hand, you know, wordsmithing, but really the, there is quite a significant difference in the person who thinks I'm in charge and everybody has to come to me to get the answers to somebody who says, you know, my job is to create conditions where sense-making, decision-making and action-taking are flourishing right at the core of the organisation. Um Jeff, the, uh, you mentioned this at the start as well. Um, you referred to future ready and future fit organizations. Uh, so mm. I, I actually want to talk more about your thoughts uh, in terms of uh, f future organizations. And, and you uh, again mentioned as well about creating those conditions. Um, one thing you referred to was the Dunbar 150, uh, up to 150 people, right? So mm. what are your thoughts on, so is that one of the um, um, systems or uh, approaches of, okay, we're going to build smaller cells of up to 150 people. Um, is that one of the conditions of, of future fit organizations? Um. 
kind of, but um, the risk of framing it that way is that people tend to think of organizations as, you know, here's the department, here's the unit, here's the thing that we put people in. And so, you know, the, one of the implications of what you've just said could be interpreted, Oscar, as those units mustn't be bigger than 150. But the question is much more, how do you get those units of 150 to be connected with other units of, of 150 that, that are connected in multiple interacting ways? And then you, once you start to do that, you start to think, well, actually, these things are not quite like what we, the way we've tended to think about organizations in the past, that, that this bit has its P&L and this bit has its P&L and somebody's responsible for that. And then they get measured on the performance of their bit compared to the other bit. It's actually much more organic. It's much more about creating the conditions where people are interested and curious to find out what other people know, both in their local area you know, within their dozen people that they know well and their 150 that maybe they regard as being their, their Dunbar set, um, but also curious about what others know that they don't. So, for example, you know, with you guys and, and the drinking dialogues that we've been running for the last year or so, um, there are a whole range of people that are connected. There are some people who come every week. You might sort of think of them as core participants in the community. But there's also been people who've come along once or twice, and then there's people who know people who know people. So if you needed to find something out to be better at making a certain decision, you'd be able to network through the network quite well. But it's because the spirit of collaboration that's been created within this community or that's emerged from this community that you would be able to do that. You wouldn't, you, you wouldn't approach it in a classical organisational way, which is to say, let's hire an expert to tell us the answer. And then we at the management team level will make a decision and then we'll implement it and roll it out. So it, so it is really a shift to a much more organic, um, I mean, natural kind of human community based way of thinking about things than the more traditional organizational, you know, rectilinear, um, you know, machine metaphor, basically. I mean, this is part of the problem is that we've organized, organi we've produced organizations around a machine model for you know, most of organizational history. I mean, ever since organizations were studied as a thing, the underlying philosophy, which was triggered by the industrial revolution and therefore people became cogs in machines. You know, that thinking has built up a whole body of understanding of, of, of how you manage organizations. And it is so tacitly embedded in people's perceptions about organization. That as soon as you start to talk about different organizational forms, their questions are, but, but, but who's in charge of that bit? And, and how do we measure that? You know, and it's like, well, you know, how do you, if you're, if you're a gardener and you plant some new plants that you've never planted before and they start to grow a little bit, do you pull them up to measure the roots and see how long, the, how, you know, how well the roots are developing? Because if you do that and try and put them back in the ground, they probably won't flourish. So you have to understand that there are certain things that you would do without thinking. And I mean, that's part of the problem. We do them without thinking because they become skilled. Um, that, that you would do in a traditional organization, that when you do them in an organization where you want to cultivate innovation and agility, doing those things that are no-brainers because you don't think about them actually create problems and, and um, uh, you know, in effect, you, know, you poison the well. I mean, you know, so, so it's kind of like being aware of some of the things that, that normally we would just do without thinking, like structuring, units of 150 have but certain... always the case if, if you do things without thinking you portray that as a potentially um a negative 
uh, part of the business. But is that yeah, always I mean, the case? If, if, you, if you do good things without thinking, then they're good. And if you do bad things without thinking, then they're bad. It's just that you don't always know some of the things that you think are good actually turn out to be bad. And some of the things that you think are bad turn out to be good. So there is a kind of a being more aware of, of why you're doing what you're doing. And, and when the reason why you're doing what you're doing is, well, everyone does that. And that's what you do if you're in that position. That's probably a bit of a signal that you might want to reflect a little bit more deeply on why you're doing what you're doing. Because that isn't how the really successful organizations of today. I mean, you know, you look at you look at the top of the stock market and you've got Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Apple. They do a lot of iterative stuff. You know, they put stuff out, they see how it works. When people like it, they build more of it, they morph it, they test it. Yeah, every time you go on Amazon, every time you go on uh, Google. You know, you're getting responded to in a slightly different way because they're experimenting with your responses to work out what's more likely to be successful. So they're doing all this adaptation. They're doing all this uh, making sense, making decisions, taking actions at a micro level built into the core of the organization, which is why they're, you know, massively times more profitable uh, and have grown in, in terms of their market cap compared to more traditional organizations that are still thinking about things in a very mechanistic or, you know, um, yeah, machine-like manner. It's interesting. So you're, you're um, so I'm just going to go into sort of Simon Weston's idea on, on systems ethics here, because you, you've, you've described a bunch of companies that at, um, at sort of a understanding an ecosystem, systemic way of working at a commercial level. So Amazon would be, you know, the, the, the leader of this, but they're all doing it. They're all doing it at a, at, a, at a level where they're doing the experimentation, doing the probing, changing stuff around it, blah, blah, blah. But you've also, we, we, we've just experienced um, the social dilemma where, where people who've been part of this and have now left the company and are going, you know, we've broken the world. I mean, we, we, yeah. we, we move fast and broke things and actually what we broke are fundamentally important and we, we're now having yeah. to wrestle with the ethical dilemma. I mean, that, is it possible to do this? And I, I, know, I know Simon thinks it is, but it's possible to do this kind of work in a way that embraces ethics as well as the fast fail kind of, let's just go and do it. And, and, and how would you approach that? Yeah, I mean, I think some of the issue, uh, it's a great question. Some of the issue that you, that you highlight there is to do with the fact that outside of organizations, we still have industrial expectations of organizations because of the way organizations are financed. You know, stock markets that buy and sell shares uh, on a, uh, th that affect organizations on a quarterly basis. I mean, even organizations that are very innovative, you go into them and you can feel the innovation and, and, and the vibe and everything. You get towards the end of the quarter and they kind of turn into this sort of, it's a Jekyll and Hyde thing. You know, they're sort of, suddenly the Hyde nature emerges in the last two weeks before the quarter end because they need to make the figures. Otherwise the stock market is not gonna be happy with them. And so all sorts of distorted behaviors happen a couple of weeks or maybe three weeks before the end of the quarter. And once they've got through the, the hurdle or limboed under the bar or whichever metaphor you wanna use and they come out the other side, they pop back up and they're back to being their normal innovative collegiate collaborative self. And, uh, I mentioned Ali the first uh, earlier on, who sadly passed away last year. He'd been former group head of Shell and he was the guy who actually coined the term learning organization. He was the guy who went to MIT and discovered a young researcher called Peter Senge 
uh, in Jay Forrest's system dynamics group. And that started off the whole of that kind of organizational learning thing. And one of the things that he was um, still in the process of writing a paper about when he, when he sadly passed away um, is the need to change some of the legal structure in the marketplace that does reward this kind of behavior. Because in effect, I mean, you know, talking about social dilemmas, so someone like, you know, Tristan Harris, um, you know, the uh, eth former ethicist at Google, if, if you design algorithms to take advantage of the legal context in which organizations currently operate, they will create the things that have been created. You know, it's, it's like the car crash, you're driving along and you see a car crash and everybody notices the car crash and pays attention to it. So what do these algorithms do? They create car crashes that, that, that people wanna look at because what they're selling is attention. So until you change some of the context in which organizations operate, organizations, even with the best will in the world, will be distorted towards this kind of behavior because they're operating in a framework that is dictated by um, ownership laws that were developed in the 18th century, maybe 19th century. You've got uh, trading and stocks that cause people to have very short term. So, I mean, one of the simple things that Ari used to talk about was why not have a sliding scale that if you buy stock in a company and you sell it within a quarter or you sell it within six months, then whatever gain you make, you lose 90% of it in tax. If you invest in a company and you keep the stock for a year, you, you lose 70% of it in tax. Keep it for five years, you lose 30% so you actually start to change the nature it becomes a much longer term game and then you're into creating conditions that are much more healthy rather than this rapid sort of roulette like kind of mechanism that we have in place now that does distort behaviors even with the best of intentions and you find that you know some entrepreneurs have have actually taken their organizations out of public ownership because they no longer feel that they can operate in a way that is in, align, in alignment with their deeper values because they're forced to behave in these ways because of the, con the game that they're in. That's interesting because we're, we're recording this sort of just as the game stock things going on where you've got these, these Reddit guys coming into the market and saying, no, we, we, we don't like the short selling. We don't like the way that you guys are betting on companies that we love to fail because, because they're going through a turbulent time at the moment. We, we actually want to do, and to, to do something else. And so there's, you're, you're seeing a, a, some kind of market shift at least there or at least a sort of uh, people exploring the tensions in the market. So I like to ask people the $9 trillion question, Jeff, as we come to the end. And, and your, <laughs> one is, your one is, right, so that system ethics challenge, right? So, so, so we can, is it going to be possible to create an organizational futures where these contexts have been reimagined? And so this kind of, we don't need a, a, a game stop uh, problem because, because you do have this ethical system within which all the organizations uh, sit. Uh, and if so, what would that look like? Yeah, what it would specifically look like, I don't know, my crystal ball is offline today. But what, we, what it would take to get there, and I think this is where, you know, if, if you look at the history of, of, um, of changing paradigms, whether it's in physics, uh, whether it's in sciences, or whether it's in uh, human cultures, um, what tends to happen is you notice the current paradigm, the current system isn't working a long time before a new one emerges. And some of it is generational stuff. You know, I mean, I was doing work on trying to create 
learning organizations 30 years ago. You know, now people are talking about agile organizations and, and it's kind of basically the same stuff under the hood. The difference is, there is there's a generation of people in organizations now who've grown up familiar with those ideas. And it's a bit like, um, there's a great quote from, if I can remember it, great quote from Max Planck, who was one of the founding fathers of quantum physics. And he said, um, the, um, a, new, um, a new paradigm in physics or whatever doesn't change simply because, or you know, a new model doesn't get adopted simply because it explains the observable phenomena better. What happens is that basically the people who are currently in positions of power within the physics game, they eventually die and their jobs are taken over by people who are already familiar with the new model. And this is what's required. So what we'll start to see, I think, is maybe it's the millennials, you know, who will gradually get into positions where they're saying, why is the system so bonkers? And as organizations, maybe the part organizations can play is to, is to lobby the lawmakers about the context in which they operate, because everyone points the finger at everybody else. And, and, and politicians are quite happy to point at companies and say, oh, you're behaving unethically. You know, I mean, look at, um, you know, Sir Fred Goodwin, who, who used to run RBS, you know, they gave him a knighthood for making loads of money. And then when he carried on making loads of money, in a way that then got caught up in the global financial crisis in 2007 to 2008. Oh, bad, bad person will take your, you'll take your knighthood off you. Who creates the context in which firms like that operate? It's the political people, but they would rather point the finger at the companies and say, oh, you know, we've got all these avaricious leaders like Jeff Bezos and, um, you know, all, all these kind of people who are, you know, the next generation of maybe the oil titans of 100, 150 years ago that everybody dislikes because they're making shed loads of money, but they're making shed loads of money in a context that's created for them by politicians. So until and unless the pressure is felt and the pressure is placed on politicians to change the legal frameworks in which organizations operate, even the ones that start off wanting to be ethical will find themselves inexorably drawn into the kind of behaviors that we don't want to see in organizations because that's what they have to do to survive in the system that's been created in which they operate. So I think it's, the, it's a generational thing. People will come along who are already familiar with the ideas of working in these kind of ways and they will get into places of power and it will become increasingly difficult for people who create the conditions at the political level to say, you know what, this is, this is, you know, we're doing our job. This is not our problem because you know, it will become clear that they're not. Thanks. It's a wonderful answer, Jeff. Thank you. Uh, Jeff and Richard. Um, in fact, I really like to thank you for uh, this hour conversation. It's been uh, a, a steep learning curve and I, I really appreciate actually to, to, yeah, to hear actually from you, from yourself as well, Jeff, more, more de details of your work. Um, I think it's, uh, a bit of an eye-opener in terms of what you've been doing in the over the last few decades. So both, thanks a lot. I've got the grey hairs for it as well, look. <laughs> we can't All see right. your grey hair because you've got your cap on. So. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, Richard, Jeff, thanks a lot.